Hey, welcome back to another episode of Salty Saints Podcast. I'm Zach, and I am sitting here with my new friend, Jonathan Morton. Do you want to go by Jonathan or Jonathan? Either one's fine, you Zach. Jonathan's fine, but you can just go with whatever you want. Yeah, I didn't realize until halfway through that. I was like, ooh, I didn't get a preference on that. Hey, no problem. <laughs> um, right on, man. Um, so you were actually referred to me through Randy, who that's has correct. known you for a long time, right? Yeah, that's correct. About 20 years, probably. 20 years. All right, all right. It's good to see Randy's got friends. So yeah, that's good. yeah. He's, he's got one. <laughs> so uh, starting out, man, you want to give us a little bit of uh, maybe just background about you, about your life, who you are. Sure, sure. I, I was uh, born in Northern Ireland, about 20 miles uh, south of Belfast. Uh, my father is English, mother is Irish, and uh, grew up in Northern Ireland. And uh, uh, I was uh, uh, brought up in, in various uh, states around. And uh, remember when I was four years old, uh, going to a Christian camp with my parents. And uh, I remember sitting on the stairs, and uh, I had heard uh, about Jesus, and I remember closing my eyes and saying, Jesus, I want to be your best friend as well. And a real uh, joy, uh, even now I don't have the words to quite articulate that, but a real joy in, in a very young life. And uh, one of the things which, as I look back, I, I noticed was I didn't really have any follow-up from that, any discipleship. Right, And in my teen years, I went to boarding school, uh, began to drift away uh, from the Lord. And a friend who I played sport with uh, at 17 uh, shared his faith with me uh, at that time, and I gave my life back to Christ. And that's when I began to really uh, look at what that meant and to try to develop that, although the first uh, five to six years, especially during the college years, were difficult. It began to get closer to the Lord uh, and began to, to walk more, more in obedience. So that's kind of my, my history up until uh, kind of college. Okay. And so you actually, you said at 17 is when you gave your life back to Jesus. So that's a, that's an even tougher time, I think, because then you've got, like you said, all that trial with what was going to come with college and everything. So. Yeah, yeah, and it was a, a time uh, of a lot of trial, a lot of temptations, a, a lot of struggles, not uh, always uh, successful yeah. uh, in, in trying to, to overcome that, but uh, step by step uh, getting uh, deeper, realizing where my life needed to go, and it was amazing how the Lord put at key times key people yeah. that could steer me in a, a direction where the next step w- would be able to be taken. That's cool. Um, so with you, you're with OMS, right? Or not now you're not. Now, now you're actually – you've been with OMS, but now you're um, – building churches basically right i mean you're building a network of churches do you want to start with one of those two camps or sure i, I uh, yeah whenever, whenever i uh, graduated from college i i really felt um a burden for a continent that i had never visited didn't know much about but it began to read about central america latin america and uh, really felt that the Lord was leading me 
to serve there. So I looked at different organizations. OMS was the one that jumped out. I loved its focus on uh, training people in country Mm. uh, to take uh, long-term leadership to reach their own people group, their own nation, which I felt was missiologically really, really important. So um, I went with OMS and uh, through a process of elimination, you're in your early 20s, you've no experience. Right. You really got to see which country really is going to take the risk. Right, right. So it was Mexico and um, I went with OMS and I continue to be a missionary uh, with uh, OMS, but uh, a number of years ago, uh, OMS seconded me or, or released me or assigned me to plant a network of Hispanic churches, uh, which has uh, grown to a level where it's now a separate organization, etc. But I started off um, ministering in the country of Mexico. Gotcha. Um, now, earlier, um, you, you were before we got started here, you were telling me about like learning the Spanish language. Do you want to go into that a little bit? Sure. I, I was sent to to Costa Rica. Where there is a you know a kind of a, a really good Spanish language school which is specifically aimed at missionaries and those serving cross culturally, etc. So you know in, in that school they divide you into different groups as you come in. There's an entrance test, etc. I spoke no Spanish whatsoever, not one word. But I was young, single, uh, so I had time on my hands. That uh, they felt that probably because I had college degree that there was some sort of ability to learn there so I got assigned in a group that was expected to do quite well and within a couple of months uh, I was placed into a remedial group um, where there was little hope of learning anything and um, they made that pretty clear I I couldn't understand what was happening it was a, it was a time of a lot of struggle a lot of frustration and I would learn things like the colors and the numbers, very basic stuff. The night before, I'd have them. The next day, my mind would be in a blank. And so, yeah, I got put with uh, three other people that weren't able to speak a word either after uh, two months of, you know, six hours a day classes. And um, I remember feeling that it was going to be important to, to go to OMS and ask them to consider transferring me from Mexico to a country where I could minister in English. So I thought it would be a good idea to enlist the, the recommendation for that uh, from the director of the language school. So I made an appointment to go and see her, hoping that she would then call OMS and say, you've got a, a no-hope uh, Spanish language case in your hands here at transfer might be something you want to consider. And uh, the, the actual day of that appointment, uh, this is before email, I picked up my mail and there was a letter from um, England. And uh, it was postmarked, but the letter itself wasn't signed. But it had Joshua 1.9 written and an encouraging note saying, you know, God's in this, don't give up you know, be courageous, be steadfast. And I, I cancelled the appointment with the, uh, with the director of the school uh, and went home and just began to, to reflect and to pray. And as I was doing that, the Lord really revealed the whole six months previous to that about how I had been raising funds 
to go to Mexico and what I had been sharing. And one of the things which just became so clear to me was the word I. Um, I I'm going to go to Costa Rica and I'm going to learn the language and then I am going to go to Mexico and I'm going to plant. And the, the word I was all over the place. And uh, to cut a long story short, I, I really was made aware, probably for the first time in a very clear way, the issue of pride. Mm-hmm. And um, that day I was able to give uh, probably the, the, the need for me to do things or the need to be recognized to the Lord and really died of that uh, at an early age, which was really pivotal for me. And uh, quite literally the day after that, I began to speak the Spanish language. And uh, the months before that, I would have spent hours and hours trying to learn colors and numbers, I began to speak grammatical structures that we hadn't learned in class. I would hear vocabulary words once, and just they would just stick. And within months, I was uh, basically using the language in a way which wouldn't be normal for them until they had graduated somebody after a year. So I was actually able to to leave the language institute early and mm. be able to minister in Mexico earlier than we thought would be possible. So. so when you were telling me this earlier, the one thought that, I mean, this just blew my mind a little bit. Um, I, I think about speaking in tongues mm-hmm. is, is mm-hmm. what I get with that. Mm-hmm. And I know classically, like, what you always see with speaking in tongues is kind of this otherworldly language that, that, you know, it just sounds like a, a garble of words kind of. But mm-hmm. then I've heard other people say... Well, no, it's 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 actual human languages, but just knowing them suddenly, and I, I'm just curious, like if 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 you think that is uh, speaking in tongues is what the Lord gave you. Yeah, I'll, I'll not get into the whole. Um, I, I don't expect you. Uh, the, the, we the, could be here for hours. The, the, on the that. whole <laughs> argument of that, but I, I just know from my personal point of view, at least my experience with the Spanish language is, I believe it was a language that I was given. It was a language I didn't have to learn. Yeah. And it was a language which I was given for a purpose, but only when I was ready to understand that purpose and uh, for God to be fully glorified through it. I think that's beautiful. So I got uh, the Spanish language uh, as a gift, which was uh, wonderful. Uh, My Spanish really hasn't got a lot better uh, since then, but it's pretty fluent. Okay. And, you know, I was able to uh, study seminary in Spanish. Uh, able to get my seminary degree in Spanish, uh, able to teach in seminary classes at a, at a master's level in Spanish. Um, so it's at, a, it's, it's at a level which is similar to English. That's great, man. That's awesome. Um, you were talking about what you're doing today. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to go into that? Sure. I, I think the history of that it really goes back to ch- planting churches in, in, in Mexico. Um, arrived in, in Mexico in uh, 1995 and it began to uh, look at medical clinics and feeding centers beside garbage heaps in Mexico City. Very quickly began to understand that the permanence of those important social outreach programs to show the love of Christ the permanence of those was really directly related to the presence of a local church and doing that through a local church. Okay. Not just starting a social work, but really doing it through a a vibrant 
local church that right. could meet the uh, emotional and spiritual needs of the people as well. So that's when my interest as somebody in their early 20s on starting churches really was ignited. And I originally went to Mexico for two years, but within six months, uh, the Lord just broke my heart for the Mexican people. Um, it was on a specific day. I, I remember uh, a lot of people, thousands of people in the street, and just almost being drawn to the side of the street and uh, beginning to weep as I saw all, all the people. And uh, that two-year commitment became a, an open-ended, uh, lifelong commitment and a journey to really learn about what does church look like, uh, how to, uh, to put uh, good DNA into a church plant. And uh, began to plant churches in Mexico. Very early on in Mexico, met my wife, Lupita, Mexican citizen. So uh, we got married in 1997, began to plant churches together. And uh, one of the churches that we planted was in a, a, a drugs-controlled area uh, in Mexico City called the Loma Colorada. And uh, it was a church, I suppose we started, it was about three years uh, we were there. Uh, the church started from zero uh, in a very difficult area. The church grew to about 400 people. And we had trained a Mexican pastor, so we handed that church over. And the day of the handover, a big celebration, Lupita and I were driving home, and we were really flat. We, it should have been a celebration day, but we were really literally in tears. And it wasn't because we didn't want to hand the church over or that we didn't trust the person that, that had taken over that church. We already knew the next place we were going to go. Uh, where there was no church to start another one, uh, but we just felt flat. And as we began to drive home, what the Lord placed in our hearts was, you know, if he was to return that day, more than 90 million people in Mexico would go to an eternity without Christ. And it had taken three years to see 400 come to know the Lord. Uh, and there was something which really impacted us about that, that uh, we had to really look at the way we were planting churches. Because that church was seen as a very successful church plant. It was a large church in a short space of time, but yet 400 people doesn't even scratch the surface of, of a population of 90 million. So we began to really look in and pray through what church multiplication looked like, churches planting churches, organic growth, uh, and... Um, that's where that whole interest on church planning movements began. And uh, in 2007, OMS asked us to leave Mexico to come up to their headquarters in Greenwood, Indiana, and to direct their international ministries uh, program. So that's about, I suppose, 70, 75 countries and um, uh, different continents. So I had the blessing of traveling probably much half of my life during that time in different uh, continents and was able to see firsthand church planning movements. That's cool. Um, movements of 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 10,000 churches in maybe a decade. Wow. And began to look uh, at those with OMS and began to read the work of different missiologists, etc., what did all of these movements, irrespective of culture, leadership, etc., what did they have in common? And look at those church multiplication principles 
And it's quite an eye-opener when you see what these movements have in common. They're very simple things, and they're all in the Book of Acts. Okay. None of them are new. Surprise. Uh, that's a surprise. <laughs> and uh, then began to look at how do we uh, look at our church planning programs and training, uh, really focusing in on those principles and contextualizing those principles in the methodology uh, that uh, churches are planted that then reproduce into movements that transform their locality and their society. So that's where my interest in church planning movements really began. And after eight years directing the International Ministries Department in OMS, felt, I don't know, things were going really well, uh, probably better than they had been for the whole eight years. But I began to just feel a little bit uneasy, um, as if just something wasn't clicking. And I asked the president of One Mission Society for a short sabbatical, prayed through that, and it was very clear that it was time for Lupita and I to resign, um, for me to resign from that position. OMS were very gracious, asked us to continue as OMS missionaries, and uh, my replacement was appointed and uh, the Lord placed in our heart during that sabbatical to plant a network of Hispanic churches um, along that multiplication sort of uh, paradigm and with a flat leadership structure, not a denomination, but an association of independent churches that would be linked by their passion and their vision to not just grow but to multiply that would share a common process which really focused in on discipleship and a quite a radical multiplication of disciples uh, with a common doctrinal uh, creed. So we uh, worked on that, uh, looked at developing that, and five years ago, uh, Red Nueva Vida, or New Life Network, uh, was started. That's awesome, man. Um Something you said that stuck out to me, we were talking about um, the various churches that you were really seeing thrive and how you were seeing a similar structure in all of those. Could you go into a few of the like pillars that you saw within each of those churches? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, you know, this was a large team in OMS and beyond that really came together um, in the... Uh, mid-90s to, to the mid-2000s to really look at this. And um, these principles were uh, visible in these different movements, and it was just an eye-opener to be able to see those placed before you and to be able to look at them and see them as a no-brainer, but uh, then to begin to evaluate and to see how the churches that one had been involved in planting really had very few of these principles evident and working within them. So you had a sometimes a large church, but it was a church which was really focused on self-maintaining its number rather than multiplying organically. And birthing a daughter church was a strenuous, difficult, costly, and hazardous event uh, rather than something that, that, that happened naturally. So one of the one of the principles which is really evident in all of these movements, and it goes back to, you know, if you look at the history of the church and all of the um, times of uh, revival, uh, 
was fervent prayer mm-hmm. and uh, really beginning to understand or at least scratching the surface of understanding the difference between a church that prays and a church of fervent prayer. Uh, obviously, a lot of all churches really pray to some extent. They have a midweek prayer meeting. Uh, members pray before lunch. Uh, there's uh, five-minute segments of prayer uh, during the service, etc. But to have a church where the body is a church which is praying without ceasing um, is the paradigm shift. To have a church that understands uh, that praying without ceasing, the heart continuously inclined towards the voice and direction of God. So whether they're in the supermarket or in their family or they're in church or they're with friends, you know, uh, Jesus, what do you want me to see? Uh, What do you want to tell me here? Is there something I should say? Is there something I should do? That continual walk uh, with God and engagement with God and having the church as a church which is corporately before the throne and relying um, in a very radical way, but also um, individually walking in that uh, ceaseless prayer, that ceaseless engagement and communion with God. And through that, you know, my experience was that the Lord, um, not the Lord's always speaking, but with that prayer without ceasing and that fervent prayer, our ears and hearts are more attuned to listening to God and knowing not just what he wants, but when he wants it and how he wants it. And I think in my own ministry life, those are some of the things that I was missing. I would have a prayer life and the church would have a prayer life probably enough to scratch the surface and understand maybe what God wanted. Mm -hmm. It's probably the easiest thing to discern. But then sometimes we had messed it up doing it in our time or in our way. So that fervent prayer of relying on God, that faith in action, taking the promises of God and changing our own way of acting, knowing that his promises will become a reality in the future, uh, began to become um, more and more pertinent, more and more part of what we were about and um, that whole being able to discover not only what God wanted but here's the timing of God and uh, here's the method of God here's the way he wants it done and, um, so, so you're almost like Joshua coming to the to the wall of Jerusalem right? <laughs> uh, and instead of the the tunnel plan or, or, or the scaling the wall plan, you have the marching around and shouting plan. Right, right, right. Uh, not a plan that we would ever come up with through a committee or a strategic plan or a leadership retirement retreat or whatever. Um, it really has to come directly from the Spirit. Right. And that comes through fervent prayer. So, you know, that fervent prayer, removing barriers, um, guiding, uh, timing, method, uh, etc. is a key element. Uh, one other, give you an example, uh, abundant gospel sowing was, was another one that OMS really uh, uh, was able to articulate once again in the book of Acts. So the normal church methodology um, 
was, you know, to, to have the church members active in inviting neighbors and friends to church so that a professional minister would then, from the platform, share the gospel. Right. And when these people came to know Jesus, then the church would begin a follow-up process for new believers, etc., and they would move into the church system. And um, what was evident in movements, Book of Acts, was a shift from um, that sort of paradigm of uh, sharing the gospel being the responsibility and the prerogative of a few to having each believer become a disciple of Christ um, that is also called to make disciples and part of that obviously sharing the gospel. So having every believer not only trained in how to share their Jesus story in 10 minutes, 5 minutes, 30 seconds, 15 seconds, being able to share your faith in 15 seconds in a store. Um, not only training them how, but putting that together with a fervent prayer, somebody uh, intentionally living their life looking for opportunity to share each and every day. You know, walking into a store, Jesus put somebody before me today. Uh, as you sit down um, in a restaurant and, and the, the person who's serving comes, is this an opportunity, Lord? Uh, looking at the neighbor who's taking care of their, their driveway, is this an opportunity? Will you open the door? And uh, being able then to have a group of believers with the church which is um, actively intentionally and humanly speaking in an over-the-top way uh, really looking to share their Jesus story rather than just inviting to church. So the, the church events become an opportunity for the church members to leverage those in their own outreach yeah. rather than the focus of the outreach itself. Right. We're not inviting you to come watch a show. Like, we're, we, like, as the body as a whole, is ready to minister as well. Mm-hmm. That's, that's awesome. But it's an opportunity for that person who's making disciples or who's reaching out. It gives them an event to engage the people they're reaching with. Right. Uh, rather than... Something to invite them to be a part of Yeah, as well. rather than inviting them just so that somebody else shares with them. Right. So that abundant gospel sowing fervent prayer, and there's, and there's other principles as well. But looking at the churches that we had planted, you know, we, they, were, they were reasonable churches, but they were churches that prayed, mm-hmm. not churches that had fervent prayer. They were, and that's a huge shift, um, and uh, they were churches that shared the gospel, but there wasn't abundant gospel sowing. Okay. Um, they, they were churches that desired to grow, but there wasn't intentionality to plant a daughter church. That was another one of the principles. So um, being able to look at, as you start new churches, being able to put those principles right into the foundation, the DNA of the church. So uh, I'm not expecting you to have all all the answers here for what I'm going to ask, but maybe just some examples of what you've seen that might be helpful for anybody listening. Um, I struggle with this myself. Like I I try... I try to lean into fervent prayer. I do. Uh, but then I find myself getting caught up in the day and, and I, I realize I, I've gone long periods of time and I haven't thought about God at all, you know? Um, 
how do you work that into how or how have you personally or seen other people work that as more of a rhythm into their life? Yeah, one of the things which impacted me, I was. Uh, doing my doctorate at, at, at Asbury Seminary, and part of the doctorate, we, we were sent to a, a kind of a Benedictine monastery, uh, which wasn't what I expected, right. uh, you know, from, from, a, from Asbury Seminary. But they brought us to this place in Kentucky uh, where actually um, the author, uh, uh, Thomas Merton, lived uh, quite a lot of his uh, life and... Uh, was obviously a monk there, and uh, basically it was a um, a silent uh, monastery where um, you know people did not speak, um, so people would walk around in silence, and you're able to go there and stay. And uh, one of the things that I was uh, really wrestling with, and still am, is that whole thing of you know how do I in my own life. Um, you know, really look at having that, the reality of that discipline and uh, how do you develop that. I think prayer is, at least for myself, you, you start your Christian walk with it. You start with a prayer. But as you move decades through your relationship with Christ and you look back, it's probably, for many people, and for myself, it's the one area where you're least satisfied with the growth can learn a lot more about the Bible, you, you can minister a lot more effectively, but you look at your prayer life and you look at how it's grown and you're, you probably feel that this is an area where my, my growth has been, been stunted. One of the things that I learned um, at, at the Benedictine monasteries, I, I looked at what they did, they keep the hours, so certain hours of every day, uh, the bell rings and they come to pray. And um, obviously their prayers are recited and there's a lot of things that you know, um, I wouldn't want to put into practice in my own life. But one of the things I, I kind of grabbed from that was um, kind of trying to adapt that and keep my own hours. So one of the things that which I've tried to do is uh, every three hours of the day, I will pause for about two to three minutes. At the beginning, I need to put an alarm. Um, but uh, now it's, it's, it's more of a clockwork thing. So at 9 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 9 o'clock, whatever time I'm awake, just pausing for two to three minutes, stopping what you're doing, and uh, just re-engaging with the Lord and saying, how, how is today doing? How am I getting on? Um, is there areas that you want to redirect me in? Is there things that are happening that I need your correction about? Is there things that I have not done that you need me to do or to say? Uh, rather than getting to the end of the day and thinking, how did that go? Just taking time to pause uh, during the day. Two, three minutes doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a game changer if it's every three hours. Yeah. So that's just kind of some of the simple things um, that I, I feel have helped me engage. Another thing, I used to read a lot of books of, you know, the how-to books, mm -hmm. you know, seven steps to an effective X or stuff. four <laughs> steps to, 
uh, church, you know, purpose-driven that, or uh, all, the, and they're good. It's good stuff, and I'm not mocking them at all. They're, they're good stuff. They're, there's a lot of stuff you can bring out. But one of the things I learned, I, I did my doctorate in uh, spiritual principles of effective leadership. So part of that was um, to interview um, 15 peer-recognized uh, top global leaders uh, from the church and ask them about their spiritual practices. What do you do? What do you not do? And uh, one of the things which impacted me there was um, all but one of them shared how they read a lot less books from other authors than they used to. Um, a large percentage of them didn't read any at all. And they read almost exclusively the scriptures. Okay. So they had moved from reading how to do this to reading the scriptures and, uh, in their words, basically saying, Jesus, what do you want me to do in this situation? So, uh, so that's the thing I noticed um, about the prayers you were saying, like, you know, every few hours of the day, you would say a prayer. Um, all the things you were saying there were, how am I doing? How's today looking? What do you need me to do? Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel like we get stuck in these loops of saying things like, hey, this is what's wrong in my life, and this is what I need you to do. And uh, if you could help me to be this way, then that'll help me do what you want me. It's like we tell God what he mm-hmm. thinks, you know. And I, I think... That's a great point. I don't know if you meant to make it or not, but that that we uh, we need to be more ready to listen than to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, you know that's uh, so. So I, I I still read a lot of books from, from other authors, but I've tried to increase the amount of time in the scripture uh, at the expense of some of the other reading and um, I try to make sure that I'm engaging um, regularly during the day and um, one of the things which has been pivotal for me since probably two or three years before coming to the to, to the US when I was still in Mexico 2005 uh, I've always had a mentor team um, and that changes over time depending on where I want or need to grow I'll bring people in who who are better at that and the best person I can find and one of um, the, the, the mentor team shared about uh, taking time just to reflectively pray about the what when and how of God uh, as part of an indispensable part of, of leadership. Uh, really beginning to see leadership not as decision making but as unbroken communion with God to understand what God wants, when and how and then to implement that in, in his church. So this mentor began to share about taking a half or one day a week um, just to be able to look at 
what's going on right now. Uh, so understanding current reality, you, you can't even begin to to look at where you're going unless you understand where you are. Right. So wh- where are we now? Uh, seeing that through God's eyes, not through the congregation's eyes or your board of directors' eyes, or seeing that wh- where are we now? Uh, God, where do you want us to go? And um, how do you want us to get there? And what's the next step? And I found if I'm willing to take that five to ten hours a week as a chunk of my schedule, as a time of prayer, fasting, and intentional reflective prayer about where do you want this to go, where am I now, then uh, the time and the energy that is saved from wasted endeavor far outweighs the time which has been dedicated. So as uh, that that mentor began to share that with me, he he shared, you know, look at at Scripture. Uh, Look at the stories that we celebrate of the great victories that men and women of God have had. And they're really very short time periods of their life where a lot of their time was spent in isolation, uh, in communion with God, in preparation for that victory. And uh, God um, sharing with them what he wanted, when he wanted it, how he wanted it, uh, and used them accordingly. So as I began to look at that and see leadership as not so much as decision-making, but finding out through prayer and intimacy what God wanted, how he wanted it, when he wanted it, and leadership really being responsible for implementing that in and through the people of God, then uh, that that changed even how I would use my week. Okay. Uh, so uh, a leader without that withdrawal in, uh, to, to the throne of God mm-hmm. um, in a, on a regular basis is somebody who's probably beginning to rely on their own self, their own experience, or their leadership team um, on something else rather than than the person of God. Hmm. Okay. That's interesting, man. Um, Have you found a way... uh, I'm trying to think I want to say this. Have you seen this kind of shift towards this more just God-focused mentality happen um, more naturally in church plants? Or is it like an intentional push by the church to get everybody on the same page and be like, no, this is what we're doing now. We're we're going to focus on Christ like every second of the day. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm not sure I'd be able to answer for the church in general because I don't. Uh, my, my knowledge doesn't stretch that far. Uh, the, in the circles which I've operated in, that's yeah. Uh, I think there has been expressed or not a general discontent, okay, um, with uh, what growth people have experienced or had. I think uh, in in quite a lot of the leaders that I've engaged with when 
the trust was built up to a level where where we could share um, uh, without um, kind of having to gloss anything over. there's a lack of knowledge on how to make a disciple. Yes. Um, most people have been taught in church. Our, our churches have focused in the last 50 years of teaching the Bible. That's not a bad thing. Teaching the Bible is good. Right. But when you call it discipleship, that's, that's where the problem is. Uh, teaching about what the Bible says and... Um, uh, people having a, a Bible knowledge uh, doesn't make them a disciple. And uh, when you get your leadership that has gone through a purely teaching model rather than being discipled, then they reproduce that. Right. And uh, you can put whatever name you want on your process or program in the church but when it's a teaching model, you're going to teach Bible knowledge. The, the, the discipleship and the process of making a disciple, uh, I think, in, in essence, is a lot more relational. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more personal. It's a lot more of a process over time. It's a lot more what uh, people in Jesus' day would have understood by teaching. Teaching wasn't a classroom environment. It was a one-to-one uh, or small group mentoring uh, where you lived life with people and you know the key focus of discipleship teaching people and demonstrating to people how to live mm-hmm. scripture not just what scripture says right and to be able to live in victory so going through a discipleship process where spiritual practices are not just identified but you are you have those modeled, you have those uh, ingrained into the way you act, um, and as a disciple, you, you, you look at your past, you deal with the past in a biblical way, uh, forgiveness, restoration, and then you begin to look at the future, what does Jesus want from me uh, as not just a believer, but as a, a disciple of Christ, and then beginning to be able to go deeper into scripture, prayer, spiritual practices, and then uh, understanding that process of discipleship, how to reproduce it in another person, and then how to identify people, win them to Christ, form your your own group that you will walk and live life with and, and reproduce. So uh, I think in, in the church there's a... <coughs> Uh, a need for that I think in society there's a yearning for it um, I don't want to just know more right I, I want to um, live a life of obedience and power I know I'll not maybe be perfect in the human sense of the word but uh, I want to be able to resolve my marital conflict in a different way Um I want to be able to educate my children through the way I live, not just with the words that I have. Right. And I want those to sink. You know, our kids are looking for integrity. I, I want to live that. Uh, I don't want to live a life where I feel as if I'm spending a lot of my time and energy building an image which is somehow acceptable to what other people in the church see as 
spiritually acceptable, and they're doing the same thing. And uh, behind the scenes, everything seems to be crumbling around me, and I'm the yeah. uh, the devil lies and says you're the only person that's uh, living a life where. Uh, you're not really making it, but you're you're, you're building the picture. Right. If we're able to drop that uh, and drop the appearances and just say, you know what, I don't want to live like this anymore. Um, you know, we, we'll, we'll just repeat with Paul. You know, who will free me from this body of death, this old person that I no longer want to be? And um, you know, that whole the whole answer that you know, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. How do I die to self? What does that look like? What does it mean to be crucified with Christ? Um, uh, to, to live for him and, and for, for death to begin. So uh, walking people through that, uh, how to do that, what it looks like, I think um, not only is what people want and need, I think um, that's where your reproduction starts because uh, you reproduce what you are. Right. Uh, apples produce apples, and oranges produce oranges. Right. Uh, believers produce believers, and disciples produce disciples. Right. So disciple making is a lot more time consuming. Uh, at the beginning, it doesn't look as fruitful. Um, and going back to that church of you know four hundred people in the Loma, Colorado, filled with believers, um, good people genuine Christian people, no doubt whatsoever. But they, they knew how to teach a Sunday school class. They, they knew how to run a breakfast club. They knew, but they didn't know how to make a disciple. Wow. And therefore, uh, that church um, struggled in, in, in its reproduction. And uh, it was always an uphill battle to get a daughter church and to... Uh, Whereas I think if you have a small, vibrant group of disciples, it takes a lot longer to produce, but the results are very dynamic. Jesus, the prime example, you know, um, the end of his three years ministry, humanly speaking, if he was going before a, a board of directors um, and giving his report three years, it might not have been, not, not have sounded really that great. Right. Didn't have that much, humanly speaking, to show for it. But he had disciples made, and when those people were emptied of self and filled with the Spirit, their results were world-changing. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful, man. I, I really, um, it, it's kind of scary, like, looking around at just the U.S. currently, uh, or Western culture currently, and, like, I feel like a lot of us are stuck in that kind of, um, yeah, we've got big churches, but we don't really... I, discipleship's lacking, in my opinion, um, and that is my opinion, I guess. But yeah, that's something I would love to see people really dig into, myself included, mm-hmm. uh, because it sounds like that's that really is the cornerstone of that and for prayer and spreading the gospel. Um, th- that's it. Um, with what you're currently doing, mm-hmm. uh, are you seeing a lot of growth? Um, yes, it depends how you measure growth, but yeah, I, I think we are. Um, you know, the, we started the Mother Church of the Network uh, five years ago, five and a half years ago now, and 
I would assume by the end of this year, probably have 60 churches. That's awesome. And discipleship, by its very definition, uh, there's a lot of work on the front end. Uh, if you do it well, you know, Jesus took a number of years with his disciples. Right. And if you do it well, uh, there's a flat curve at the beginning for, for quite an extended period, but then the curve is exponential. Uh, so uh, I think as I look at it, the, the, the foundation is there, and we're beginning to see the results of that. We're at third generation at the minute. So we have a granddaughter church, so a church that we've planted has planted a church. Um, I would hope that by the end of next year, we will go to the fourth that's generation so cool. and uh, the importance of, of you know your your model of, of planting becomes really important then uh, you know that whole flat structure um, one of the other principles of you know, church multiplication is that churches plant churches mm-hmm. not mission organizations um, or committees um, churches give birth to churches mm-hmm. And when you begin to go down the generations, that's really important because uh, the church plants a daughter church, and rather than a third party being responsible for that whole process, that mother church births that child. It's uh, through that multiplying of disciples, and you know some of those disciples feel called to multiply themselves with inside their local church, so the church grows. But some of those disciples feel called to plant uh, or multiply their disciples outside their local church. So a new congregation is born. And um, the passing down of the DNA uh, from mother to daughter is a key element. And they're able to nurture, they're able to exhort, correct, uh, they're able to encourage uh, that new church to not only be birthed but also have the same DNA as the parents so that it it too will will replicate the process. And one of the things we find in New Life Network is, you know, the, the importance, uh, you know, for these disciples that, that are being produced, we have a, like a two-year discipleship program uh, where people go with a, a discipler for, for two years and, and they walk through... Um, you know, about 65 different encounters where they um, learn how to live the gospel. You know, not just the gospel of forgiveness, but um, of being uh, restored, of being filled, of being commissioned, of being used. That's the good news. And uh, after they move out of that process, they're then beginning to, to win people to Christ and form their own discipleship group. For those that feel called to do that outside their local church, then we have further training for them. Mm-hmm. And um, as I mentioned earlier, I did my doctorate at Asbury Seminary and uh, got friendly with um, the leadership of Asbury. And um, in conversations with them a number of years ago, we talked about starting a one-year training program for lay people who were disciples to plant a church. So New Life Network had the, the privilege of writing that curriculum. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, putting all the graphics and stuff for that together and uh, teaching it and uh, Asbury Seminary certificates that so people uh, it's an amazing thing uh, I, you've got to I got to applaud the vision of Asbury Seminary uh, you know this is the only Western Seminary that I know of that's doing something like this uh, I know others are doing innovative stuff as well but Asbury Seminary is taking people in with some of them with no high school diploma some of them uh, that didn't go past grade school so no formal academic entry requirements and take them into a, a, a one-year course that they are giving a certificate for. Really? And um, it's a very practical course. Um, it's teaching somebody as a disciple how to move a group of disciples into a church. What, is a, what are the common denominators of a church that a group of disciples does not have and how to to move from a group of disciples into a new church. And uh, that went so well uh, that uh, New Life Network and Asbury are now finishing a second course, which is for those people as they begin to pastor the church, how to pastor a church as a layperson. That's awesome. So um, we finished the writing of that course. We're just finishing the breaking it down into modules and we begin to teach that in, in in January of this year. So those two courses uh, offered by Asbury Seminary and New Life Network together, and New Life Network teaches them in Spanish, and the uh, and Asbury Seminary certificates. And I think it's a, it's a wonderful partnership. That's awesome, man. Um, you were talking about those sixty-five encounters. I think you said. Mm-hmm. Um, so are those like real life, real time? like happening in the real world or they mock no no those are things where you get a group of people who say um i'm a believer in jesus christ now Mm -hmm. and he calls me to be a disciple and i I respond to that call Uh, and there's a um, there's an understanding of what that means the responsibility of that the uh, the desire to to really be crucified to self to be filled with the spirit to live differently each and every day to be a different husband right. a different father a different member of, uh, of church a different uh, member of society and um, the person who's winning you to Christ that discipler then uh, meets with you uh, once a week to take, take the next little step look at what I need to put into practice and, uh, and what uh, uh, needs to go for my life, what needs to be added in. I take that next little step, and then next week there's another encounter and another one. So <clears throat> almost this Pauline growth uh, over a two-year period of taking little steps to, uh, to maturity, right. if we understand maturity not by what you know, right. but how you obey. Right. So, you know, you look at the meat uh, and milk Christians of Corinth, and uh, they weren't milk Christians because of a lack of what they knew or a lack of their ministry. Right. Um, they were being disobedient. So a mature Christian is somebody who obeys what they know Christ is asking them to do. Right. So they may know very little at the beginning, but they're in full obedience. They're in maturity. And uh, as they grow and mature, as they walk in maturity, 
they grow in, in knowledge oh, no. and ability, etc., to be able to discover their gifts, talents, and, and use those. So it's very much a like Jesus did with his disciples. It's it's living life with people, but it's systematic, it's weekly, and it culminates in that commissioning to go and make disciples as well. Gotcha. I, I guess the the like the thing I'm asking about that is like um, like when they meet, are they meeting in more of like a one-on-one environment, or is it like kind of going out into the world together and and like living these practices that they're talking about? The group is normally between five and uh, and ten. It, it can be as small as three, as large as fourteen, fifteen. Okay. Over that, you begin to lose the dynamic. A small sure. group. So that's about the size normally, and they they meet together in a round table environment, and then uh, the practical outpourings of that are all over the place in the process. Gotcha. So, for example, when they when they learn about what communion really means and uh, what it, what it means for them and uh, the symbolism and that and the reality of that, etc. Um, the next week they're serving communion. Uh, they're leading communion. Okay. Uh, in their homes, uh, in in the church that they attend, and uh, that's a pretty you know just I'm just using one example. That's pretty special. Whenever you got a discipleship group in your your local church and they're meeting at a time which they arrange, so yeah. it could be a Sunday, it could be a Wednesday, it could be a Saturday. Could, group comes together, but they walk through the communion part which is just a week um, but the next week they they come and they say pastor I'd like uh, you know our, our group would like to to serve communion at church is that possible not only possible it's that's needed you're, you're you need, doing it you need to do it <laughs> so they, they will they'll, they'll come up and they'll serve communion to, to the rest of the body um, you know when they win somebody to Jesus um, they, they baptize that believer uh, I, I will not baptize the, uh, the, the disciple of somebody else. Um, they, the, the command is for them to, to go into all the world, uh, to, to preach the gospel, to make disciples, to baptize them. And so when they win somebody to Jesus, they have the, uh, the privilege and the responsibility to take their new uh, disciple uh, and to baptize them and to walk with them over that two-year period uh, to really produce them into somebody who is um, uh, mature and capable of reproducing as well. And then from that larger group of people, of those disciples, God's going to call some to make disciples outside their local church, and that's where your planting of churches comes from. Um, so it's, a, it's, a, it's an organic process. That's so cool, man. This, uh, the, I don't know a ton about church planning, so that, I'm sorry if I'm talking your ear off okay. asking random questions, man, but I, uh, yeah, I love it. Um, is there anything else that you'd like people listening to know, um, if you could leave them with anything right now? Yeah, just uh, really for, for prayer. That, that's, our main, that's our main desire and need. And I know it's something that rolls off the tongue really easily, um, but... We, we do really need prayer uh, and uh, as as the network grows you know we're looking at the minute um, last month we 
we began to start work in in the country of Spain. The Lord opened the door there. It's looking very soon that the Lord's going to open the door in Argentina. That'll be awesome. And uh, in the country of Cuba. And uh, just prayer uh, that God will give wisdom, uh, guide guide us. And uh, also prayer for, for family. Uh, you know, it's... Uh, it's important for for us to realize that uh, our our family is a first and foremost uh, a very key area of of our own ministry responsibility to to minister to our our, our wife or husband and uh, then also to our kids and not to just pull them along as you're ministering to the rest of the church, but to make sure that they are not seconded uh, out there. and So just being able to have the wisdom to to really take the time. Uh, I have two kids, one's 11, one's nine. Nine-year-old is uh, quite highly autistic, so uh, that's been a special blessing for us to be able to have that responsibility given to us by the Lord to steward him and uh, it's a challenge, but it's an area where we, we've been able to grow. And our prayer is that through both of our kids, God would be glorified, that they would live a fulfilled life, uh, a life of peace. So Lapita and I, I know, would uh, speaking for Lapita as well, would really value your prayers for us as parents, first and foremost. And then just as we live out um, what we believe God's calling us to do, which is making disciples, just pray. That's great, man. Yeah. Right on. Well, thanks so much for joining me, talking uh, talking to me about what you're doing, uh, where, where where you're moving, what what's going on in the world, and uh, I hope to have you back sometime, man. Yeah, love it. God awesome. bless you. Take right care. On. Thanks, man. Stay salty. In a world where relationships are easily broken and often discarded, the Rebuilding Us Marriage Podcast is your lighthouse guiding the way to hope, restoration, and transformation in Christ. I'm your host and marriage coach, Dana Shea. Join me as we discuss the necessary tools for rebuilding marriages from adversity, betrayal, and disconnection. It's time to reignite love as we rebuild marriages from the ground up. Listen to the Rebuilding Us Marriage podcast on lifeaudio.com or wherever you get your podcasts.